Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And he swings. Hits it high. And deep. And gone. Still going back. Yeah! Out of here. Welcome to the big leagues. Deep to center field. Another top 100 themed episode here on the call up as we have our final top 100 update for the 2023 season out. I'm Aram Layton. He's Jack McMullen. And this is a fun one because, again, if you didn't hear last episode, definitely go check that out. We talked about the newcomers. But since it's a final update, we figured we shouldn't go through every single player again that we just talked about a little over a month and a half ago. We're going to talk about the biggest changes. And now in today's episode, Biggest climbers, a few fallers, and then superlatives, which I'm really excited about. We'll do that on the back half. And the one aspect about the superlatives is we picked what we wanted to give superlatives out for. But you and I have not conferred on you know who we're picking. We have our own choices. I think there's going to be a fair amount of overlap, but there'll be a few outliers. So looking forward to that. I think so. And we've got some unique ones at the end. But of course, we fly through the five tools, right? Best hit, best raw power, best game power, um, best run, best field, those kind of things. So um, it's going to be fun. And you have to end it with a yearbook every year. And the superlatives are the yearbook special. But I'm excited to kind of throw you the risers or the fallers because it's as simple as me asking why. Why did this guy climb? Why did this guy fall? So I'm just going to do a lot of listening if you're cool with that. I sounds great to me, man. You you're, you always tee me up with the best question. So I appreciate that. I also wanted to give Kyle Manzardo a quick shout out. Uh, yeah. Guardians farmhand in the Arizona Fall League. He's not going to be talked about in this episode because he's barely moved in the top 100 for a good reason. He's just kind of sitting right there in the top 45 spot. And But what he's doing in the AFL is crazy. He's hit five home runs in his last six games and two last night one of which was 471 feet. I understand that the ball flies out there, but he's putting up a lot more 108s, 109s, 110s. He's getting into his power, and he's looks freaking awesome. So he might be a guy that ends up climbing a little bit and a guy that could end up breaking camp. So counterpoint, he's one of the guys that was too good for the Arizona Fall League Yes, that correct. we were talking about. So yeah. there are guys that just finished low A, and then there are guys that are in triple and probably – debut this year assuming full health and Manzardo wasn't healthy for the entirety of this year but if he was with the guardians all year long i can almost guarantee you he makes his big league debut this year yeah so like it's one of those where okay i get it you're getting him more reps but he's too good for this level if you were to create like a plus stat in terms of afl readiness um i think some of the you know low a guys that you see on this list are in the 80 to 85 range, but Manzardo, he would be like a, I don't know, 140 AFL plus. (laughs) Yeah. There's legitimately no, like there's, he's pretty much the guarantee. I think other than, you know, people are talking about the water, a couple other guys, 
But just in terms of consistency and what this guy does, it's just going to be kind of light work for him, especially with the way he finished the season. It makes sense for him to be out there, though. Like you said, he needed the at-bats. They're trying to figure out if he deserves a opening day spot. And I think there's a big, big reason why, like a big reason why he is needing to make up for lost time a little bit, I think, is you, know, you, you saw him between the trade. July 6th was his last game with the Durham Bulls. Then he gets hurt. And then gets traded and he still doesn't even make his debut because he's still kind of rehabbing and coming back until August 18th. And that was in rookie ball. And then doesn't get back to triple a until August 24th. So, you know, he missed a good chunk of time there. And I think it's similar to the Matt Mervis thing where it's just like, you we want you to get a head start on proving to us that you belong on the roster opening day. And I'd say he's doing that so far. So I went to fan graphs to remind myself of what was the everyday lineup for the Guardians this year. And they have transitioned to the 2024 projected opening day lineup because I was going to say, I, I think it makes sense for Manzardo to play first and Naylor move from first base to DH. I go to fan graphs and they have Naylor as the DH and Manzardo as the projected opening day first baseman. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. Yep, I love it. I love it. By the way, Brian Rocchio is a projected opening day shortstop. So, do with that info what you will. <laughs> Risers. Um, Kobe Mayo is our first riser, and we don't have the concrete number of spots that they rose. It's just significant risers and some significant fallers. Kobe Mayo was a homer and an RBI short of a 30 and 100 season. His OBP was 410. Is this and the next guy that we're going to talk about, too, kind of a case of the cumulative full season stats pushing them up. Yeah, absolutely. Because with Kobe Mayo, we're talking about a 6'5", 210 pound, probably even bigger than that guy who has a really good feel to hit. So all the underlying data points have always been really enticing. You get really excited about it, but it's okay. Can he make enough contact? Can he hit the ball in the air consistently? Is it all going to turn into production? We've seen a lot of guys with good underlying data that, it doesn't always turn into production. He gave us flashes of that, but then he struggled a little bit, you know, last year. And then he had a really nice start to the season that helped kind of shove him up in the midseason update, but then just went nuclear to finish the year. And, and this was one of those situations where, yeah, I would say very simply production can really just put you over the top, especially when you're a 21 year old in triple a, and he yeah. closed out the season dude over his final 35 games, 331, 475. 638 slash line, a 20% walk rate, a 23% K rate, and a 31% ground ball rate. So, I mean, he's not striking out much for a guy that's producing that much power. 10 home runs in that span, by the way. He's walking a ton. He's hitting everything in the air, and it's to all fields with authority. So, I just don't know how you can really have many reservations about this offensive profile at this point. And then the, the thing that kind of put him over the top for me, and I think this was also a byproduct, like or, or I guess a catalyst in bumping him up, was yeah. the defense. It's come a really long way because if he was limited to first base DH, you know, I don't know if he flies up as quick, but I look at this offensive profile and I see a guy that could probably play a pretty good third base or at least a passable third base. And I'm like, all right, this is a really, really, really good baseball player that I don't know if there's... 15 guys I'm taking over him. And that's why he checks in at 12. Okay. Can I ask you the question now? Um, Where does he fit in next year? And then we do the Orioles infield. September 1, 2024, Orioles infield. 
I mean, the, I think the answer always changes. This is why I ask. It's so fluid. I, I think they move on from Mountcastle. You know, I, I, I so it's I, one of I the think best he, hitters in baseball against left-handed pitching. I, I know, which is the crazy part, but I, he's just not that, not very available. He's dealt with, and it's not his fault, but dealt with different injury issues, different ailments. I think it's going to be kind of an open competition type thing. Is is how is Mayo performing in comparison to Kerstad? How is you know the left side of the infield going? Like how is Westberg doing? Is he going to play some third? Uh, because Mayo, you could plug in at third. You could plug in at first. You could plug in, of course, at the DH spot. And I think it's really just going to become down to whoever hits more. So I, I don't know. Or does Kerstad end up going back into the outfield? Do they clear up an outfield spot? I think the answer kind of lies in which veteran they trade, which is a cop out. Yeah, that is a cop out, but it's okay. Um, in September one, I also kind of have to factor in Holiday at second base with the with the trajectory that he's on right now. So it's a hard question. Samuel Basayo is our next big riser, another Orioles farmhand, and I don't really have a question here. I just yeah, want to say I, I understand and I agree with you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, we've talked about him. So I, I mean, it's. When have, when have we really seen a kid do this? He He's not just a 19-year-old. I mean, he was 18 for the majority of the season. Turned 19 and as a catcher. As a catcher, turned 19 in, in August. So this was just an unbelievable season all, all the way around. And what, what's most amazing to me is it just seemed like every time he got promoted, every time he got challenged, he did better and better and better and finished the year with a little taste of double A where he was unbelievable. He ripped through the competition at the very end there. His final 50 games of the season, 335, 454, 653 slash line. That's an 1107 OPS. But what stands out the most to me, again, this was an 18-year-old, 16% walk rate, 19% K rate, and 11 home runs, plenty of doubles, mixed in some triples. And the swing is just so optimized like for just damage consistent damage it's either line drives in the gap or he misses under it a little bit further and it ends up going 430 440 like it just seems like the bat lives in the zone forever and he's able to do a little bit of everything it's a lot of hard hit singles and doubles but you see the power starts to creep in there too but it's not one of those things where he needs to go deep to be productive like he can find the gaps and hit them hard and it's a nice balance of field to hit and, and power that you just don't see from Guys that big at that age. And then yeah. you, you bake in the fact that he was catching while doing that. Do we, do I think he stays there? I don't know. Uh, maybe not. But if he does, I mean, that's even more insane. Uh, but the way he finished the year, too, is absolutely absurd. There's a stretch here of his final 11 games. <laughs> you, you ready for this? Because this is between high A and double A. This includes four double A games and then the rest are high A. His final 11 games of the season. He slashed 512, 592, 1122. That's 21 for 41 with six home mm. runs, 11 extra base hits, eight walks, and five strikeouts. Mm. And I know that's a small sample, but that's a kid that you are throwing straight up to double A at 18 or 19 at that point, just turned 19. It was one of the best seasons we've seen in full season ball from a teenager since in the last several decades. No, he and Holiday have put together the two best in the last decade, I think. And it came same year, same organization. Basayo in his age 19 season is going to split the year between double A AA and triple A. 
hard to wrap my head around, but yeah. that's that's the kind of bat we're looking at. Um, Cubs right-hander Cade Horton is a riser here, and he was already a riser yeah. at the beginning of the year. He had a great start to the season, but he finished so strong as well. Was he your runner-up for minor league pitcher of the year? Snelling won it. Yeah, definitely. I think it just came down to to workload and the fact that, I mean, Snelling is a younger lefty who climbed three levels as well. Uh, I just think yeah. it's really remarkable. But yeah, easily the runner up. Okay. He is. What about the second half pushed him higher? Or was it just a continuation of the first half? A little bit of both because... I thought the way he closed out the season was really remarkable because what what really stands out with Cade Horton is we talked about it a little bit in the past. He didn't throw that much at all in college or, you know, of course. And then we were kind of waiting to see how much are they going to build him up? How many innings are they going to have him throw in college? I think he threw a total of what, like 50 innings, something like that. Um, So they wanted to manage his innings and he had a little bit of a break in July. And so at that point we, had already thrown him up pretty high in the midseason update. But I was really interested to see how he comes back from that break because you see some guys fade as the season goes on. Uh, maybe their stuff doesn't look the same. Maybe their command wanes a little bit. And not only is he pushing his limits and you know pushing towards territory that he's never really sniffed in terms of workload, he's also yeah. being challenged in terms of competition. And he's getting up to double A now and you know, facing some pretty good lineups in his first full season of, of professional baseball on the bump. The way he closed out the year for me, watching back at those starts, I just saw a guy that looks like he's a pretty complete pitcher for for a prospect. And also the velocity was all the way there again. So he comes back off of that little break, builds back up, closes out the season with a pair of 71 pitch outings where his his fastball averages 96, Mm -hmm. five innings scoreless both times in the postseason. Uh, which won't show in the stats. So he really threw an additional 10 innings that you won't see on like baseball reference or whatever. And those 10 innings were, you know, actually one earned run in the, in those 10 innings. But it was just remarkable to see. And I think the thing that really put him over the top for me was how quickly he got that change up. Same story with Jackson Job. They're very similar in terms of like how quickly they learn and what they were able to do to just diversify their arsenal. And just, it shouldn't be that easy to find a third pitch that already looks like it's plus. When you already have two really good breaking balls and a fastball, so really four pitches, it's a complete arsenal. It's unbelievable stuff overall and great command. It It's just hard to say that there's something that you don't like about Kate Horton. Like, I don't know how you could poke a hole in this guy right now. Yeah. Let's knock out the other two pitchers here real quick because we just mentioned both of them, Job and Snelling. Jackson Job with the Detroit Tigers, it's simply a matter of him throwing and he threw in the back half of the year. He was not throwing for the front month and a half, two months of the season. You had a month and a half to work with before the midseason update, and then you had the remainder of the season to work with at the end of the season update. And if this guy did throw for a full year, he probably was minor league pitcher of the year because of the improvements that he made. And this is pretty much turning into the Just Jackson Job show. Like, yeah, I was going to say, we, we talk about him, I feel like, every other day. <laughs> but it's, yeah, without going, rehashing too many of the same points, maybe some people you know just discovered the show on YouTube or whatever it may be. If you did, please subscribe. If you're listening on audio, please uh, leave a rating, help us, help us grow it. But if you've been listening on audio or whatever for a while, you've definitely been hearing us talk about Job because, well, one, he came on the show. But two, it was one of those things where you could just see it all coming together for a guy that was 
drafted as the top arm, right? And was a number three pick in the draft. And that guy figuring out that change up that quickly is absurd. The fastball velocity ticking up is, is amazing. I mean, he's, he's getting a lot of 98s and 99s. His mentality on the mound is, is really impressive. I love the way that he can attack hitters. And what really sold me, if I can boil it down to one thing, is this guy's going right on right change when he has a 70 slider. And that one, that shows you how much confidence he has. Two, that shows you how good that changeup already is. And I'm saying right on right change in high A and a, and a double A start as well. And now in the AFL against really good hitters, he can go at you four different ways. And now a newfound cutter will use that in any count too. So for context, that's the kind of shit you save until you get to the big leagues. Yeah. Like that's when you are forced to deploy a right on right changeup is when you're seeing you know, the three hitter in a major league lineup, if he's seeing the White Sox and he's got Luis Robert up, that's probably when you go to the right on right. Robert's a bad example because he can literally just go to a right on right slider and probably punch him. But um, I'm saying like, that's the guy you circle on a lineup card at the highest level of baseball that we have on planet earth. And that's when you deploy that pitch, but he's working on that probably because he knows he could do that as soon as the end of next year, but also he wants to be great right away and he wants to make sure he knows how to do it before he gets there. And that is another level of thinking that I'm sure many prospects, many pitching prospects have, but that they don't utilize because they don't have to. So he's kind of playing 3d chess, which is fascinating to me. hundred percent. Snelling is the last pitcher. And this is very simple. He was the minor league pitcher of the year for just baseball. He threw a billion innings. He got a billion punch outs. There were less than a billion hits against him. He had an ERA under two. He was amazing. And he was the best pitcher pitching prospect in minor league baseball this year. I mean, in terms of what he did from a body of work standpoint, it was just remarkable. And the fact that he was able to handle that workload as a high school lefty, you know, and and this first full pro season, his first pro season period and kept his velocity the entire year. I, that That's some amazing stuff and, and handling the challenges. I mean, the numbers in low A were video game, high A were video game adjacent and then double A underlying numbers weren't great, but still had a one something right. And, and, and was able to just continue to churn out decent starts and then pitched well in his final start of the season, which doesn't show up in the stats as a postseason start uh, at Amarillo. This is a lefty that has unbelievable command already, who has a fastball that just jumps and a good feel for a curveball and a changeup. And I'm like, this guy's going to keep getting better, too. I think his velocity is going to tick up. He's a really athletic pitcher. And I think that the secondary stuff's going to keep getting better. So he, he's only starting to, to really blossom into what I think is going to be the best left-handed pitching prospect in baseball going into next year as some guys graduate. And I think as he starts to solidify himself. You think he can jump Tiedemann? If Tiedemann doesn't graduate, you think by the midseason update next year, he could jump him? I think it's very possible because Tiedemann, there's a little bit of that inconsistency and it might be because of the injuries and stuff, but I definitely think he can jump him. Yeah. I don't know if he'll have the opportunity because I feel like the Blue Jays may use Tiedemann Mm -hmm. sooner than. Yeah. It's like, why waste this many more bullets in in the minor leagues? Yeah. You kind of know that the the, the arm is going to, he's going to have, I hope I'm wrong, but there's going to be some flare ups here and there. Like how many innings do you want to burn in the minor leagues? He's a higher. He can get outs in the big leagues if he's, if he's throwing strikes. Right. And you know, you, you protect him, you short leash him. I, he was so good in big league spring training. I think if he has another good big league oh, yeah. spring training, that guy is just up. 
Um, wrapping with some hitters on the risers, and then we've got four fallers. Tamar Johnson walked over 100 times. What He and Jet Williams were the first two teenage prospects to walk 100 times in a minor league season yep. since 2005. I think it was 2005. Yeah, it might have been 05. But Tamar, he showed patience. He showed way more juice than I think yeah. you were thinking he was going to show. A little bit less hit. But at the end of the year, the numbers looked really good for Tamar Johnson. It's funny. He's one of the most interesting case studies because I think there was a level of I was frustrated in the early going because I'm looking at a guy that everybody told you know, everybody told me was, you know, the next 70, 80 hit tool guy. And I'm like, oh, OK, that doesn't look like that. And so it's like, OK, well, what's this guy's profile? How does he fit in? And then you start to see him rip off some really ridiculous exit velocities. And you start to see that swing do some damage, damage in the air. I mean, we're talking 109s, 110s, 440 feet in the Florida State League. Florida, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I'm like, okay, so now we have a left-handed hitting power bat. And then you're watching his approach and the patience. And and, I mean, just the way he's able to work these counts and the way he's able to leave borderline pitches. And this is another case of a guy that, you know, when you're in low A and you're a patient, that sometimes works against you because the zones are so bad and relatively inconsistent. So I almost had to like recalibrate my perspective on Tamar Johnson because there was a level of, okay, wait, forget whatever your preconceived notion was about the hit tool and all that stuff. Like that could be there and that could come. But at the end of the day, if he whiffs a little bit more and right now the hit tool is fringy, uh, but he's 19, he was 18 for a portion of the season, the power, the overall approach and just the swing and the athleticism in the box as an 18, now 19 year old and low way and high a, I mean, I thought he was as impressive as, as any of these teenagers when you really look at where he had to hit and how he hit. And then he finished the season really well. I thought high a was a great test for him. I know it's a hitter friendly environment there, but he started slow, punched out a good bit and then finished really strong. And, and that showed me a lot. Honestly, I was, I was wondering if he was just going to kind of coast to the finish line uh, I got challenged in high A. Things got tough. And, you know, I'll, I'll be back next year. Now, final 25 games of the season, he really looked good. And it just seemed to get better and better and better for him. So uh, I, I was really impressed with Tamar. And I can't wait to see what he does next year. Yeah. Tamar Johnson with the Pittsburgh Pirates, by the way, didn't mention that he was a Pirates prospect. And I know like some of you that are listening to this, like know when we say Tamar Johnson Pirates, but we do have to do a better job of just mm-hmm. like attaching the, the team. I'm terrible at that. Absolutely. Um, Next guy is Chase DeLauder with the Cleveland Guardians. Yes. DeLauder was amazing in the first two weeks for James Madison in his draft year. Then he, what was it, a broken foot? Broken foot. And then had a re aggravation, I think, later on. So it really delayed. Yeah. it, It was just arduous. And he got a late start to this year. He's in the fall league. He's kicking ass in the fall league right now. But DeLauder, as soon as he got on the field in high A, he proved that it wasn't just mid-major baseball that he could annihilate. It was high A pitching too. Oh yeah. And that was what really stood out. Now you see him in the AFL hitting bombs too. I I think what really put DeLauder up over the top too was he went to double A for a week or a week and a half. And it was more of the same. You really saw another guy that when you see guys that have pretty good high A numbers, low A high A numbers, and then really good double A numbers, Go check the walk rate. And if it's a guy that walks a lot, I'm telling you, 
a lot of times it's better for these guys to get to double for these patient hitters who have a good approach. I, I actually remember talking to Anthony Rizzo about this, and he was the first person that kind of put me on to this thought process because I'm like, what do you mean double A was a little bit easier for you than low A and high A? And he's just saying like, dude, you don't know where the ball is coming sometimes. It's all over the map. You have a good approach. It almost works against you. The strike zones are inconsistent, all that good stuff. And now every time I look for a guy that's got a 20% or below chase rate, and I want to see how they kind of transition into double, a lot of the time they transition really, really well. And this was another example of that. On top of that, the athleticism. I don't think I don't think people realize just how athletic Chase DeLauter is. I, I can tell you I didn't, you know, coming right out of the draft. I know he could move for a 6'4 guy. He's 235. But I didn't know he could run like plus run times, cover ground and center, and just be so athletic in the box. And the scariest part about DeLauter is I think his swing could even be a little bit more efficient. There's a there's a forward move that sometimes can get him a little bit pushy. Like it's it's wild. If if he could stay in the backside a little bit, a little bit longer, you know, a little bit strong. And it's something that he's already gotten a lot better at. If you look at the, the film from that FSU series where people started to get worried about him because he got the ringer of, of like three lefties that are all pro now um, versus yeah. where, what he looks like now. I mean, he is lower half is much more consistent, but I think there's even more in there with the lower half that he could tap into even more power, which is terrifying because he's already producing plus contact rates, low chase rates, and plus uh, plus exit velocities. And you look at what he did over the course of the season. This includes zeros on a fall league thus far. 12% K rate, 10% walk rate. He slashed 344, 410, 518. Everything looks great. It's really hard not to be bought into this guy. I'm going to give you a crazy physical comp to Chase DeLauter, who again, 6'4", 235, moves incredibly well. Kyle Hamilton, the safety for the Ravens. <laughs> The Notre Dame kid, he's 6'4", 225, 230, and he can play a good safety. And like, just if you want to Google images, both of those guys, you'll see it. And obviously, Kyle Hamilton is a physical freak. You don't see it as well in a baseball uniform. But DeLauder is built like a tank at 6'4", 235. So I think those guys are very similar. There's a reason that Kyle Hamilton is already one of the better secondary players in football. And DeLauder is, is built like a freak athlete. And there's something to be said about guys that are just built like that, built with different. That, with that coordination, too. And yeah. I think that's the amazing part is the field of hit is so impressive. I mean, he'll just throw his hands at a ball, shoot it the other way. But then he's also hit one 110 to dead center 460 this year. So yeah. I'm telling you, this dude, in terms of upside and, and just tools across the board, he's up there with just about anybody. And there's like some shades of Kyle Tucker in here. Damn. Okay. Two more guys. Kevin Alcantara with the Chicago Cubs is next. And this guy, I don't want to say polarizing, but he goes through hot and cold in the prospect uh, industry like very few. Why is he hot right now? I, I think finally showing that he can get into his power in games a bit more. This is a 6'6", 200 and. 20 pound guy, 210 pound guy. He's very long, lanky. Um, and speaking of Anthony Rizzo was part of that Anthony Rizzo trade yeah. from the Yankees. I mean, it's, I, I had some questions as to whether he was going to be able to control those levers and the ground ball rate was really high. And I'm like, okay, he's just kind of long to the ball. And there's a little bit of end zone whiff and he was struggling with breaking balls and guys, 
with those long levers will struggle with breaking balls, kind of swing over them. You think of O'Neill Cruz, you think of Ellie De La Cruz, you can think you can almost have that image of them kind of just swinging, kind of flailing over. It's really hard to do uh, when you yeah. are that long to stay short to the ball and still be able to kind of stay under a breaking ball and hit it. And that was my concern. And then we start to see him shorten up and just shorten up more. And every time I checked in, it's like this guy's turning around velocity in. He's driving breaking balls down the other way. But all of a sudden, he's starting to cut down on that ground ball rate a little bit. I still think he's one of the most volatile prospects in minor league baseball. That said, seeing more of the positive, that upside is just too much to to pass on when we're talking about top 40, 50 prospects. And now that he's getting closer, kind of elevating that floor a little bit with the production, he's still just 21 years old. I thought adjusted pretty well to double A, all things considered. I know the numbers wouldn't say that, but the at-bats looked much more competitive than I thought they would. And then has really started to settle in in the AFL. Very polarizing. Definitely a guy that I'm nervous about if I'm like acquiring him. But you can dream on so much. And he's starting to give you more of that reality uh, that you can see, which is which is exciting. That's the thing. It felt like he was a great idea until maybe the back half of this year. And yeah. now you can actually put it on paper and you can see it in game, which is huge. Yeah. Um, yeah. And at some point, projects do need to turn into that. And I think yes. that was probably what elevated Dominguez to the point of a mm. big league call up this year where he was a great idea. But this year, he actually proved that he can be so consistent. 100%. Um, last guy is Cam Collier with the Cincinnati Reds. Why did Collier rise as much as he did? Tangible adjustment to his swing and the numbers. So, you know, if I see good numbers and then I see a tangible adjustment in the box, I sign me up because I've always loved Collier. I mean, it's just something that you look at what he's been able to do at such a young age. This guy put up some pretty solid numbers. And again, the Florida State League really sapped the power. But the exit velocities were insanely strong. Once he made that tangible adjustment, you really saw a guy that all of a sudden was starting to run into plus power and plus EVs. And uh, we saw him put up some 109s, 110s. And again, this is an 18-year-old who's still kind of getting into himself as a hitter and still kind of figuring things out. But that tangible adjustment paired with the production over the final stretch of the year, I love the adjustments he's made in the box to be able to kind of make more contact, be more under control. His timing is much more consistent now. He was definitely a slide, hip slide guy, kind of start back. And then it looked like MJ Melendez a little bit, and that's really hard to control. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now it's kind of simplified it, stacked on the backside. His hands are more simple with his load, and it's resulted in way more contact. And we saw that over the final you know, 30, 40 games of the season. But then also seeing him pop those 109s, like 110s and and that, like being in his bag already, I was like, okay, this there's a lot to be excited about here. And a kid that, I mean, just seeing him learn so quickly and adjust so quickly, like that's what we expected from like Lou Collier's son. That's right. just been this wonderkin basically forever. And it's just cool to see it like coming to fruition already in pro ball at 18. He also has such a quick swing. Like it's such an, it's such an efficient like path to the baseball. 100%. And that's, it's something that like, I can't see very well consistently but there are some guys where you just see it and it makes sense and that's a guy that like it you see it and it just makes sense four fallers we've got two big power guys and then two guys that really disappointed in their big league experience we'll start with the two power guys that's yankee el fernandez of the rockies and spencer jones of the yankees 
Start with Yankiel. Is it just a matter of whiffing too much? What's yeah. what's the word? It's the approach and the whiff. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's one thing when you're whiffing. It's another thing when you're whiffing and chasing forty percent of the time. Yeah, I still like Yankiel. I do, yeah. but we have a fifty game sample here where the at bats were just rough, man. And um, you know, we we were worried about it, but we were very excited about him. But I was like. Double A is going to go real well or real bad. And and yeah. think about the converse of what we just said. If you're an aggressive hitter, going up to double A is not easy sometimes. And no. that's almost usually what pushes guys to be more selective. If you aren't more selective, either that means you're not seeing the ball well or you're just resistant to, to adjustment. I think he just wasn't seeing the ball well. Like I think it was just a bit of a shock for him. I mean, mm-hmm. he was swinging at 66% of sliders over his final 50 <laughs> games. Like, I mean, he was chasing at a 49% clip at sliders. So it's like, I mean, th- that's just, that's, that's some hobby bias stuff. So yeah. again, I, I don't want to pile on him. He's young. He's 20. He showed us a lot of really exciting things last year, but we have a 50 game sample of 199, 258, 342. It's a 600 OPS, 32% K rate, 6% walk rate. Uber talented, but I mean, he's got to make some major changes. What are the changes that Spencer Jones with the Yankees needs to make? Because Jones is a guy that you were incredibly high on coming into the year. Yeah. Um, Understandably so. He looked amazing in his first sample of pro ball and he looked really good at Vandy too. But I I still think he somehow flew under the radar in college ball. Um, But Jones this year, it just didn't really go well for him. Why did it not go well? Uh, similarly, his approach was not great in the early going. And I think he does that surprise you. Does does the lack of solid approach surprise you with him a little bit? Yeah, because I thought that's like you know, the Yankees took him in the first round. He's a big dude, six, seven power guy, had a great year the year before and, and walked. And I'm like, OK, like I thought he'd be selective. I definitely did. And similarly, he struggled with the breaking balls and he's six, seven. Like, so I mean, it's the long levers trying to trying to control that he made some changes in the box to try to simplify things. And I think that's what really he needs to do is this is a dude that does not need much effort to get into plus power plus plus power. And so at the end of the year, he made some changes. I don't think they totally showed up in the box score, but some of the underlying numbers, I mean, the whiff went down, the chase went down a little bit. The overall swing decisions were just better. Uh, He looks more comfortable. He didn't look as sped up or crowded in the box. I think really it's simplify. Get with Aaron Judge, talk to him about how he simplified. And I know not everyone's going to be able to simplify like him. But to me, that just it seemed like he didn't really have a consistent feel all year long. And I think it's because it was always working for him before. This was kind of his first adversity as a hitter. And, you know, I'm interested to see how he responds next year. Yeah. Two guys that I don't want to say failed their big league, you know, audition, but really underwhelmed in their big league audition. Gavin Stone for the Dodgers, Everson Pereira for the Yankees. And and let's start with Pereira because he came up at the same time as Dominguez. And while the Martian was the Martian, Pereira and Austin Wells really struggled. Like they looked viciously overmatched. Um, Wells is not a top 100 guy because he has so many concerns behind the plate and he really struggled. Um, But Pereira... What does he need to fix to be a good big league hitter? Because obviously he was a great triple A hitter. I don't think he has anything else to prove in triple A. He's ready for the big leagues. 
But the question will be, how ready is he at the beginning of 24? It's the it's a similar similar issue. I mean, sliders. he got spun to death in mm. the big leagues, man. And I mean, he saw more sliders than fastballs. And that's a that literally tells me the scouting report was just rip a slider at this guy. He'll swing at it. And that's what it was like that in Triple A too. That was my concern. And I was hoping, you know, get up to the big leagues, like, hey, buddy, if if you don't figure this out, it's going to be really difficult. And, you know, I'm sure the Yankees explained that. And it's really hard to not swing at 86 mile an hour sliders in the major mm-hmm. leagues. It's very, very hard. But I don't know what that's a byproduct of because I, I like the swing a lot. It's kind of surprising how much lift there is there for how good the swing is. I do think it's another guy that just doesn't recognize as well and either needs to find a way to be able to do that. Usually that means you're rushed. I don't think he looks that rushed. So this is a little bit more of a head scratcher for me, but for whatever reason, he just has not seen sliders and that goes all the way back to the minor league. So that might be a a larger issue than I gave it credit for going, you know, into the mid season update. Gotcha. Um, And then Gavin stone with the Dodgers to wrap stone. Just he, he threw, like, I don't like saying this about a guy, but you could see it pretty much clear as day. He threw timid in yeah. the big leagues this year. And that's it's not a fun thing to watch. Um, he went back to AAA. He looked really comfortable. Our guy Walker Bueller started his rehab appearance and Stone followed with, what, six no-hit innings or six one-hit innings? Yeah. Um, so he was comfortable in AAA. We just don't want this guy to be a tweener because he can no. be a really good major league pitcher. Yeah, I mean, I think age... Combined with with the struggles, like he's gonna be 25 next year, and just guys kind of yeah. passed him by. I, I still think he's gonna be a, a solid big league starter. That changeup is too good. He's kind of tweaked the arsenal a little bit, but when a guy's throwing his changeup more than his fastball, it's like, oh, you know, that it, how much timid. that's timid. Yeah. yeah, that screams timid. So I think it's really fastball command, confidence with that, and finding something you can spin. I think changing that slider to a harder cutter was a good move. And I think it was part of the reason why he regained some success in AAA at the end of the year and finished the year really strong as well. I thought he had some competitive starts at the big league level uh, to wrap up the season that, you know, I know that the box score might not be great, but I thought the start against the Giants wasn't bad. I thought the start against the Red Sox, it, it ended kind of poorly, like six innings. I think it was four runs, but I didn't think he looked that bad. I, I think this is a number four starter and he'll find a way to get himself there with some of the tweaks. I just think it's kind of hard to do in season. You are the GM of an expansion team and you need to select one of these three, only one Gavin Stone, Emmett Sheehan, Ryan Pepio. The way Pepio talked lately is uh, makes you almost want to go with the recency side of things. I'm going to go Emmett Sheehan because I think he has the highest upside. When you have that, you're not worried about the fastball reliance. No, not at that release point. Because I, I do think he has a good, like good secondaries, and it's just the feel for him. Pepiot, I mean, it took him a while to get to here. Yeah. And I think Sheehan, if he gets to where Pepiot's at in terms of the command, he's gonna be a lot better. So it's risk in different ways. Stone's probably the safest option, or now Pepiot with the way he's thrown, but I love the upside. I'd go Sheehan. Love it. Okay. Um, superlatives now. And we're going to kind of go through these like a little rapid fire. We don't need to necessarily like hit on these guys numbers that back it up, but 
we're going to, you know, go through and we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 superlatives. We could through. probably, we could probably drop a couple of the, uh, of the whimsical ones at the end. I, I like cult hero. <laughs> yeah. Cult hero is fun. Um, I, I like the whimsical ones. We'll, right, see we'll, see. How quickly, we'll see how quickly we get through like the, the cut and dry ones. Cool. I'm in best hit. Best hit tool, who you got in the top 100. This is the entirety of the top 100. Yeah, this is the top 100 specifically. Um, and again, the the article is linked in the episode description, but uh, it's got to be out of El Amador. Same. Yeah, just, yeah, I mean, from a data perspective, or if you just watch this guy hit, and the fact that he's a switch hitter, but from a data perspective, you know, 90-something percent zone contact and just got better and better as the year went on. Got banged up, which was kind of slowed his momentum, but... Easily the, the best hit tool guy, I think. Yeah, Amador with the Colorado Rockies. I had the same pick. You best could say Jackson Ro- Holiday, though, but I think from a data sure. standpoint, it looks like it wouldn't totally translate the same way at the highest level. That said, you could make a Holiday case, absolutely. When I close my eyes and think hit tool, I think a switch hitter second baseman like Ade Amador. Yeah. So that's kind of why I went with him. Best raw power, I've got two guys. James Wood and Owen Casey are the two that jumped out to me in the raw power department. James Wood with the Nats, Owen Casey with the Cubs. So I, Casey was was my runner up for the raw power. Um, Junior Camonero actually took it. So Wood weirdly, like I think he has the potential, raw power potential, but kind of struggled in the second half to get into the the, the power consistently. Um and Junior Caminero, we've talked about the 90th percentile exit velocity of like 110. Yeah, and then that's crazy. right from the same cloth that Owen Casey is. Uh, but again, James Wood, like, I still have 70, 80 because he's 6'7 and has shown flashes of it. But Caminero and Owen Casey have put up more 110s and 112s and 113s and 114s this past year. So I'm with you on Caminero and Casey. Okay. Um, all right. So I guess we're, what, one and a half out of two we're similar on? Yes. Um, Best game power, who you got? This was a tough one because it's very result-based, right? Who's getting into their power consistently in games um, and has a swing that's kind of geared to be able to do that. For me, it was Kobe Mayo. You look at the ground ball rate, you look at the EVs, and then you look at the production. Mayo hit 29 homers. I don't know if anybody else on this top 100 list hit 29 homers. And that might be like a lazy way to look at it, but again, it, it was just... Easy game power. Yeah. Did Keith, Keith hit 27? Colt Keith hit 27, I think. Yeah, 27. Okay. Um, I went with Wyatt Lankford of the Rangers. I okay. Think that that's I, that's a fair one. I think you give this guy 162. He's going to leave the yard 35 times. I really do think so. That's so. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't think, I didn't think Wyatt Lankford. That's another good one. I think Colt Keith's also a good one because you got Keith with 27 homers in 126 games, Kobe Mayo with 29 and 140. Um, yeah, yeah, but I think that's a good one. Okay. So still one and a half, um, best run tool, best speed in the top 100. Who you got? Jackson Chorio. Okay. I, and this might be, this might be a little bit of recency bias because I think there's probably three, four guys who are probably all all in the same realm of their 70 run guys. I don't think we have an 80 guy on this list, but I think we might. Chorio was running sub fours to fur or to first base. And it, I mean, when I saw him out in Nashville, 
that's got to be the fastest dude I've seen in a while out there. And it was, I mean, I, I couldn't believe the stopwatch. So like I literally had my buddies who were at the game with me do it themselves to make sure I wasn't like having some sort of like physical issue and like clicking it too soon. And they all kept getting sub fours too, like three eights, three, eight, five. It was remarkable watching him run like that. Okay. So you went Jackson Chorio, the Brewers. I go Dylan head of the San Diego Padres, oh, their first round yeah. pick this year. You know what his 60 yard dash time was perfect no. game has a 60 on his, on his profile. He ran a six, two, two 60 yard dash. <laughs> Yeah, that's gross. I so would love it. I head. would love a Chorio Dylan head race. So you don't see it with the stolen bases yet. He was four for seven in the stolen base department to start his pro career. But I think this guy, like, if anybody's going to do the Victor Scott ninety bags thing, it it might be Dylan head. I think that's the best answer too, in terms of like if anyone's going to be faster than if if you if I could pick one guy to be faster than Chorio in the next two years, and my answer would be Dylan head. Like Lawler's fast. Really, really yeah. close. But now we have, you know, we have home to first times in the big leagues from Lawler. It's yeah. just not quite there. Uh, head, head could do, especially from the left side of the box too, which works, works in your favor. Yeah. Um, best field. I've got two answers. I've got an outfielder and an infielder because I, I think it's kind of hard to compare apples to oranges in this case. No doubt. Outfield. We have to agree. Yeah. No, no, no. I, it would be, it would be weird if, if we disagreed on this one, it's a no brainer. Yeah. Uh, Pete Crow Armstrong of the Cubs. Like, you got simple. it. You simple. got it. Infield. If you had to pick an infielder, do you have an infield answer? I was thinking about it um, just in case, because I know we didn't put it on the sheet. Yeah. Um, th- there's a couple guys that I think could could kind of crack the infield side of it. I love Ortiz and Joey Ortiz. That was my answer. Yeah. Joey I Ortiz. Think you can make a Lawler case just because how clean he is over there. But I think Ortiz yeah. is a little bit more special, like in terms of just freaky ability with the glove, like better arm, just makes crazy plays. Joey Ortiz is there's a thread that I put out. I don't think you remember the one I put out on Joey Ortiz where I yeah. just I literally only made that thread because I was having so much fun going through his defense video. And I'm like, I need other people to enjoy this. <laughs> and uh, there's there's just unbelievable highlight real plays that that guy can make, you know, day in, day out. Yeah, um, I went Joey Ortiz as well. Best fastball. We jumped to the hill now. I think we should have the same answer. Maybe, maybe not. I have Mason Miller of the A's. So I actually have Jacob Mizorowski. Wow. Okay. But here's, okay. How are we just defining this though? So it's like, is this potential for best fastball or like presently at this moment, the best fastball? Uh, I don't know. So I kind of looked at it as present and Mizorowski is up it to 102. My thing is Mizorowski lacks command of his fastball. That's that's, that's the problem. Times. So that's, that's my concern. So like, that's the thing is from release height and velocity, yeah. it's the most outlier of outlier fastballs. Like it's Kyle Harrison, but harder, <laughs> you know, like yeah. that's why to me it has the chance to be the best fastball. But at this present moment, if you're like, you got to pick one of these guys to make 10 hitters whiff on only fastballs. I'm picking Mason Miller. So I'll line up with you on Mason Miller. And if you look at the top 100, I have a 70 present, 80 future on Mizorowski, 80 present, 80 future on Mason Miller. So telling on myself there. So actually Mason Miller with Mizorowski being the kind of heir apparent. Got you. Okay. Um, best breaking ball. Who you got? I think we're going to be lined up on this one too. You I, think so? Paul Skeens. Yeah, Skeens is slider. 
Yeah. Yeah. Were there any other considerations? I had, uh, I had I, Job, Job Slider, of course. I had Job Slider, too. <laughs> Those were the two answers um, I had. And then, I, honestly, Cade Horton's breaking ball is, is he's got two of them, but yeah, just he, pick the one that's on that day. Um, and then that was the kind of it. The other one that jumped out to me was Andrew Painter's slider. Yeah, it was like Painter. You could pick Painter across the board. Um, right. But yeah, Painter sliders is silly too. I don't know if there was anyone else that really jumped out to me the same way. But Not those really. were the same guys that I was looking at too. Yeah. Best change up. I think we should have the same answer here. Um, I want to give a tip of the hat to Bubba Chandler's change up, but it's got to be Drew Thorpe at the Yankees. We just talked about it on the last episode. It's diabolical. Yeah. It's di- yeah. and of course Gavin Stone's right there, but Thorpe's I think is better. I yeah with the command of it now too. I mean it's it's gonna be one of the best changeups in the big leagues the second he gets there. It's disgusting. Um, drippiest is the next <laughs> one. Just guys that ooze drip when they're on the field. I've got two answers. Yeah, I want I want yours. Junior Caminero, the Rays, and Yankee Fernandez, uh, the Rockies. Oh, also, quick runner up on the changeup. I forgot about it. Lesko. I got to send you oh, some video of that, dude. There's some freaky changeups. Just not enough body work, not enough consistency. It's not there, but that's a good, a, a good honorable mention. Back gotcha. to the drip conversation. Which is Yankee is. I mean, you and I witnessed the Yankee yeah. drip together. Like, so it, it, it's Caminero and Yankee for me. Those are the two. Yeah, I mean, so Yankiel was was hilarious in the uh, Futures game. It was just awesome to see him just do his thing um, and just see the confidence and you know just the way he he goes about his business. I thought that was a, a lot of fun. I, I might have a recurring answer here, but Pico Armstrong, man, he's got the he's got the swagger to him. I, he's a which is really funny. He's that LA kid. He he unapologetically is I love the way he like carries himself. He always has those just kind of like those pulling up like, like he looks like an NBA player pulling up through the tunnel sometimes when he comes to these games. And so I'd go, I'd go Pete Crow Armstrong, but Yankee is another real close one. Another sneaky one graduated. Andy Rodriguez has crazy oh. drip. And he, do you remember when we were in the lobby of the West and after talking to him for the call up and I, I saw like the gold plated gummy bear chain that he yeah. had. And I said, dude, that's sick. And he said, apologies for the language. Don't fucking touch it. <laughs> and I was like, that's hilarious. <laughs> for those who don't know, he's one of the nicest guys. Yeah, too, he so said it out of love. It was funny. funny. Like, and he laughed after that and he gave me a hug. And it was it was great. But um, oh, I thought man. that was so funny. Um, the who is that award? I picked it for you. Uh, Ramon Ramirez of the Royals. Who is that? <laughs> the other two guys that jump out to me. I think a lot of people don't know Juan Brito with the Cleveland Guardians. Yeah. Brito and Luis Baez with the with the Houston Astros. Yeah, I thought those were great ones. And I thought Jairo Iriarte. I think if you're not in the Padres circle, like you may not know that guy, not a high profile international free agent. And I thought Luis Laura could be in that conversation as well. But yeah, Baez, for whatever reason, people just don't pay attention to Astros prospects. No. And then until they come up and help build a dynasty. And then it's Yiner Diaz time. Yeah, yeah, correct. Correct. Then it's, yeah, everyone loves Yiner Diaz. Or or it's a key piece to go get you a Hall of Famer, you know, with Gilbert right. and Clifford. So it, it's funny. Baez is a special talent. And I just, yeah, he doesn't get nearly the love. If, if Ramon Ramirez flops next year, I'm 
a lot of people are going to make fun of me because I had several replies. They're like, this guy's not even in the top 30 on pipeline and not even the top 43 on fan graphs. Like, how did you even come to this conclusion? I'm like, dude, there's a full write-up that tells you why I came to that conclusion. That said, like, I understand that it's a little aggressive, but if I was working for a team and I caught that guy at the complex, I'd say, I don't know if there's a hundred prospects I'm taking over this guy. And sometimes when you have that aggressive thought, can work out really well, like the guy who convinced the Rays to trade for Junior Caminero, or it can work really poorly. I really like what I saw there. But yeah, he's got to be the number one who is that guy um, because no one knew outside the Royal Circles, I think, who who he is. Yeah. Um, the Colt favorite. I, I think I picked yours for you. Xavier Isaac with the Rays is, is your Colt favorite. And I think that the Colt is developing because of this show. So how do we define Colt favorite? I think a guy that prospect heads have latched on to. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is Xavier Isaac. And it's, it's funny because I mean, that was a guy that I just fell in love with a few games in and then, you know, started to buy his cards. And then I just bought a box of, of Bowman and had the best pull of my life, which was an Xavier Isaac out of 10, which is nuts. Um, It's just, you've listened to the show long enough. Like you, everyone knows how much I love the swing and how much I think it's going to play. Um, but I think is there anyone else that could be kind of like that prospect head cult favorite that you think could be the next candidate for that. I think Sebastian Walcott's another one. Which yeah. is, I, I, that's, that's a, that's a, there's a facet of people on Twitter that just love that guy. And yeah. he's freaky. Don't get me wrong. Like he's awesome. But I think that's another like cult favorite guy. And then another low key one, Arjun Namala. He has a nice little start to next year. I think a lot of people are going to jump on that bandwagon. He's super young. He's long. He's he's twitchy. He's powerful already. He's got a cool name. Like I, yeah. I could just I could see people kind of latching on. I yeah, I can definitely see people latching on, but I think not many have latched on yet because he wasn't a top 10 pick. I don't even he went what like 21, 22 to yeah. Toronto. I think yeah. he's 22. But I think Walcott is probably the right answer because there are people that are, you know, putting the 17 year old in the top, like 40 of their prospect ranking. So I'm yeah, like, yeah, no, I've, I've seen him like even higher than that. Yeah. So that that's like Colt 101 there. Like yeah. that's, that's when, you know, and then of course, Jason Dominguez, but that doesn't count. Right. Um, last one is pretty just cut and dry. I don't even think it's opinionated best bargain. I kind of sorted by signing bonus. Yeah. Um, you had Jefferson Caro and Edgar Caro signed for 200K. Curtis Mead signed for 200K. Yvonne Herrera signed for 200K. Haido Iriarte signed for 75K. Juan Brito at 60K. Ramon Ramirez at $57,000. But the winner clear as day is Sedan Rafaela, the Red Sox, who is a $10,000 $10, international free agent. We should have pulled some money together for my softball league. Doubled that offer. And had that man roam in center field for us. Yes. Ah, like $10,000. That guy made his signing bonus in three big league games. Think about that. That's insane. Yeah. Three big league games made a signing bonus. I love, I love when guys like that make, I love it when everybody makes it, but I love it when guys like that make it. Cause that's a guy that, Grinding it out for 10,000. Like he just loves it. He just wanted a chance. And it's like similar to David Schneider signing out of high school for 50 K. He made a joke about making his signing bonus. I think in like two weeks and like, it's, it's just, you got to love it. And Sedan Rafael loves it. 
and $10,000, what a bargain. And there's a lot of guys that you can find, not on this list as much. There's been previous lists where there's a lot of guys that are like sub half a million international free agents. Uh, there's yep. there's value in quantity. 100%, maybe more so than spending $5 million on the prize possession and then sprinkling across the board. So Definitely. Uh, well, that'll do it for this one. Next episode, we're going to be doing top 10 prospects, kind of just running through the top 10, because that's an area where we had a little bit of shuffle and it's going to be fun uh, to highlight each of those guys. Again, the link is in the episode description if you want to go check out the article. As always, thank you for listening. Look forward to talking prospects with you tomorrow.